1: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they party like it's fourteen ninety nine. You can find us online at <laughs> www.doubtcast.org. Or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR 1680 AM, or streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean, Sup. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Well, gentlemen, uh, this is a very special episode. It's our
0: Vice episode.
1: Vice. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, we
0: oftentimes criticize religion for some of the negative impacts it has on society, promoting intolerance, homophobia, blah blah, blah, blah blah. Yes, uh, et cetera, etc. Cetera. But we don't ever really pay attention to some of those other ways that religion damages our lives. Something very simple like getting in the way of having fun. Yes. And so this is our episode where we celebrate vice in its many different
1: forms. And, and, and where do we start? There are, there are so many options.
0: Well, let's just follow the pattern. Let's start with sex. Sure.
1: Always a good place to start.
0: I think if you go to your typical bookstore and go into the Christianity or Inspiration section, you'll see a lot of books That talk about Christians embracing their sexuality and trying to get rid of these stereotypes of Christians as being these sexually repressed fundamentalists uh, and all that and show that, you know, God wants people to enjoy sex. So the very next question I asked was, uh, hmm, I wonder if there's any evangelical pornography out there.
1: That's the natural next question to ask, really, isn't it?
0: Have any of you guys seen this com, the leading Christian porn site?
2: I had actually heard of that uh, several years ago when they, um, they were talking about porn addiction. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it was something like that. Yeah, they a, were. Yeah. Uh, they were talking about porn addiction, and it seemed contradictory to me that there would be a Christian porn problem, but apparently there is. So,
1: Well, and, you know, it's an interesting website. The only bummer is that um, it's all missionary position. Wah, want want? No, is there actual pornography on this website? Because no, no, I don't think there is. It's just a ruse. It's yeah. just a ruse
0: to get people to come to the website. Triple
1: X Church.
0: Yeah, it's like a counseling and therapy website for people who are locked in the grips of porn addiction, as they like to put it. And they're also peddling products on there, uh, including one X3 watch premier accountability software for the
1: mac or pc user. This is wonderful. This yeah. is a stranger than fiction piece yeah, right almost, here
0: almost almost. Yeah, accountability software apparently what it is is it's uh, it's spyware that you voluntarily install on your computer and you give a list of contacts. Basically you put your pastor's email address or whoever your accountability partner pastor,
1: is. spouse, yeah, um, gay lover
0: And what that does is it monitors your web browsing for any questionable sites that you might visit. And then it sends that address, including the amount of time that you spent on the website to your minister, spouse, whoever, Mm -hmm. so that they will know whenever you were looking at pornography.
1: According to a recent study, um, 90 percent of ministers are actually asking their uh, parishioners to, to log on to this website because it gets them the best links.
0: Yeah, that occurred to
2: me. You used to be – the fear of God always seeing you held you in check with your sexual thoughts. But now, That's right. now with the internet age, uh, we've kind of downloaded God's ever-seen eye to the internet. And so now you can have uh, – God
0: is blind to the cyber world.
2: Your minister can check up on you in the same way.
0: What really gets me about this website, though, is its packaging. It's put together like this trendy, youth-oriented Oh yeah. Yeah. It's and, great. and and
1: the bus that they have, which was downtown, it's it's purple and it's got like super cool Jesus on it, and it's it looks like it's graffiti written on it and it's triple X yeah.
0: church. They sell these T-shirts, and this this is what gets me the most, is they sell these T-shirts on their website. Jesus Loves Porn Stars. And, of course, they're modeled by these very busty young girls. And they have, like, the cliche 1970s-style uh, porn star with the mustache and glasses and everything. Dude, and women
2: have mustaches? That's not attractive <laughs> yeah. at all.
0: Male porn star, oh, sorry. Evangelical porn. Yes. Okay. Uh, it's it's uh, and weird. It says, yeah, of course. It's kind of creepy. And it says Jesus loves porn stars. And I'm just thinking about all those poor young men in youth group. Getting mixed signals from, yeah. from the
2: girls. Well, they, they uh, did. You watch the video where they go down to spring break and decide to proselytize there uh, outside no. the bars and stuff. It's on their website there, so it's like they. they it's kind of like um, you know. Campus Crusade where they get a bunch of people on spring break, go down to the places where they're sitting in vice like, you know, Florida, Panama City, Daytona. Yeah, and, and, and they, stand outside them. The, yeah, they stand outside the bars as people are coming going and then try to tell them in, in, about, you know, the dangers of pornography and stuff. And a lot of the members of the group are like, you know, well-meaning, young, you know, attractive yeah. young Christian girls who are like and these drunk, the, the video just shows all these like guys staggering and they're like, hi, you want to talk about pornography? And so the guy's like, hey, what's your name? And they kind of, it's funny.
0: <laughs> Speaking of members, of the group did anybody see their their mascot at triple church.com the 20 foot tall inflatable penis wally the wiener
2: Wow, you're making this up
0: i am not no. making this up here's a picture and we'll have a link to it <gasps> oh, on my the
2: god website. get it out of my face
0: take a look at that
1: oh man it's just distasteful to have someone crucified to it
2: he looks like kind of a malevolent expression on his – Yeah, he's know.
0: got – it's complete with scrotum and smile. Wow,
1: and it, it his name is on it, which is good because – Yeah,
2: Wally
0: the Wiener. Uh, they bring this out. Uh, they have the Wally Awards. Uh, I, I think it was as an alternative to some video game awards or something, and their slogan is stimulate my mind, not my Wally. But yeah – I think at some point they had to discontinue the Wally the Wiener mascot because a few too many people were going, I don't know how Christian this is bringing a huge inflatable cock
1: to these different locations. I would like to have been the president of the pitch meeting for that. You you need money for what now? And I'm looking at the picture here, and clearly Wally is Jewish. So (laughs) (laughs) – Yes, yes. Our Wally, mission is very
2: circumscribed s- s- scribed. It's, it's yeah. circumvented. <laughs> this episode um, is not going on the
1: radio.
0: <laughs> w- Wally, uh, Wally doesn't like the European stylings. But, uh, um, but yeah, of course, it's just old time sexual repression. Put in this nice, new, Put in a sexy youthful outfit. rapper. Yeah, I mean, it really... But you don't have to go very far to, to see just how ludicrous this is. Uh, for example, one of my favorite posts on the site is called The M Word.
1: Monkeys?
2: Mammal. Masturbation. 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 Oh, I don't know why that occurred to me.
0: Yeah. Here's a quick look at one of their articles. Eight reasons why not to masturbate. Actually, it doesn't even say why not to masturbate. It just says eight reasons why not to dot, 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 dot. Apparently, they're too it's embarrassed a dirty to word. say masturbate. Yeah. 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 Number one, masturbation makes you feel alone and deepens self-centeredness. And sleepy. Number two, masturbation is all about you. The opposite <laughs> of the way Jesus lives is, is that a bad thing <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean are they keep thinking uh, of the Seinfeld episode? What if my yeah. masturbation involves others? I,
1: <laughs> would it be better then? well it? yeah and that's a that's a perfectly valid choice
0: <laughs> masturbation takes you deeper and deeper into porn and sexual
1: fantasy deeper I, deeper and harder i, I
2: and think faster. as a scientist, I want to ask about the correlation versus causation problem there mm-hmm uh. Uh,
0: Number four, God designed people to have spouses, not objects.
1: <laughs> masturbation <laughs> wow.
0: makes people objects.
1: <laughs> Who says they can't be both
0: <laughs> masturbation programs you, number five, to hide your problems. What? Huh? I I don't even know. it under means. a bushel. Number six, the chemicals that are released during masturbation can make you rely on it to help you with pain, similar to drugs.
2: Really? About, like,
0: I got one hell of a headache. Uh, can <sighs> I have a moment alone with.
1: <laughs>
2: wow, they, they seem to have this idea of of, of the um, snowballing effect that if you do something, you'll <laughs> want to do it more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anyways, let's continue. Yeah, that was
2: unintentional. This this snowball effect where if you do something, you'll want to do more of it. But what about, the, like, did they ever think that maybe it's, like, more damaging to have a bunch of people who don't masturbate who are sweating it out? You know, just, oh, right. I, I don't want to – I'm like Mount St. Helens here. And then, the, you know, yeah. somebody walks by and, oh, I'm going to – Well, on
0: our last How episode – sexual we, immorality has been avoided by uh, masturbation. Right. You know? On
1: our last episode, we talked about um, the Catholic – Sex abuse in Ireland, and a lot of that is due to this repressive: you can't masturbate, yeah, I, you can't do anything. Well, they got to find an outlet. I
2: think I'm, I think I'm safe in saying that there's been more damage caused by preventing people from venting their desires in the world than there has been, uh, you know. Preventing.
1: Yeah, masturbation is a victimless crime, unless, of course, every sperm is sacred.
0: I, when, when I the, wouldn't call it a crime, but instead of snowballing, couldn't you say slippery slope? <laughs> okay, maybe not.
2: Is this the way this entire episode is going to be? Because I'm not going to say I anything. I hope so. Anything. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> I'm not saying Jack. That. Our, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Our credibility is shot. Speaking of people without credibility, Bristol Palin yeah. is out and about and preaching the gospel of abstinence. Yeah, um, think the yeah, cows she would know out of the barn on of... that one. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. And th- the company that she's spokespersoning for is um, a candies corporation which is candies foundation uh, well uh, candies corporation is are people who make uh, like sexy shoes and clothes for preteens and okay. are, are really fairly and, and not just preteens but they make women's clothes too but they're they're very like you know hyper sexualizing like, youth hypersexualizing youth you thank you um, but the candies Foundation, which attempts to offset that and give them good <laughs> p r is um, uh, is sending Bristol Palin around to um, teach abstinence the, to yeah, young the, girls.
2: The tobacco companies just came into mind, where they were like, "Yeah, we, we have messages for teens not to smoke with Joe Camel. Yes, and candy cigarettes. It, you don't want to smoke. Until it's you're
1: exactly old. the same thing. And um, yeah, so Bristol Palin, and, and she's also not only talking about how you should be how you should be abstinent, but um, how difficult it is to be a teenage mom.
0: Yeah.
2: So they're using her as kind of like a, a cautionary tale. Don't be like Bristol because look what she has to get up at 3 a.m. and feed the
1: baby. Yeah, kind of. It's weird to set up your spokesperson as someone that you don't want people to be like.
0: Right. She's talking about how great it is raising this child and and how it wasn't a mistake and everything else. Uh, But then at the same time saying, you know, people shouldn't be having underage sex. I think her interview with the Today Show, somebody asked her point blank, you know, if people are going to have sex, shouldn't they have protected sex? And she real quickly gave that lip service. Yes, of course. But abstinence is the only sure way to avoid it. Well, yeah, if you can stay abstinent. Yes. And uh, Bristol Palin should know very well that that's not always easy to follow through on. The best
2: spokesperson for somebody would not be somebody who had that, but somebody who uh, has like, you know, had educational goals that went to school and and didn't have a kid until they were ready to or something like that. Why why doesn't the Candy Corporation have somebody like, you know. They do, actually. Like Michelle Obama.
3: Yeah, no,
0: they they do actually. Uh one of their messages that they that the Candies Foundation tries to get across is be smart, don't give up your education because yeah, you had see, to have well, a child. Right. So no yeah, I'm not saying like everything they do here is bad. I mean, I, I could certainly get behind informing people on some of the dangers that are associated with teenage pregnancy. Uh, of course it is a problem and we need, you know, we need to find ways around it. I'm just Looking at their mission statement and everything else, I'm trying to figure out, like, how much do they actually support real sex education that's going to help people as opposed to abstinence? And some of the messages, messages they are giving are just downright confusing. Such as the uh, new T-shirt that they're marketing? Yeah, they do have a T-shirt. I'm sexy enough to keep you waiting. And if you <laughs> look at the, the model yeah. wearing this, it's a tight-fitting, low-cut tank top. That, you know, right across the breasts is plastered, I'm sexy enough, and then in very small letters, to keep you waiting.
1: Uh, I like, too, how on their website, the picture of the model wearing the shirt cuts off her face so that she is – she's just um, a A set of breasts and and a nice taut stomach. Yeah.
2: Could you say that again? Well, they're – (laughs) they're softer, though. They're taking (laughs) –
1: they they've removed um her as a human being and it's just the sexualized uh parts of so, her
2: let me just check in with you so so far this morning we have the the enc- encouraging of having uh sexuality and messages like that the prevention of masturbation and the i'm just wondering where this is going
0: it's a cocktail for disaster <laughs> so to speak well before we get ourselves in trouble, maybe we should move <laughs> to our,
1: <laughs> the cows out of We're that barn. Start too. recording all over again. <laughs> is this odd? Wow.
0: Let's move to our, our next vice. Uh,
1: yes. So we've covered sex, more or less. Up next is drugs. This is certainly not going to get us into any kind of trouble here. Are there any drugs.
2: federal laws I should know about before I speak? Now.
3: I, I do not-
0: there is a long history of religious influence on drug prohibition, and this is stretching all the way back to the Middle Ages. While I was trying to research, you know, what am I going to say about religion and how it relates to drugs and the drug war? I came across a really interesting fact. Do you guys uh, remember ever seeing examples of those old propaganda reels against marijuana?
1: Yep. Like Reefer Madness. Yeah.
0: Reefer Madness
1: is a famous Which example. Wonderful, And the musical is awesome. Oh, really? Have you seen it?
0: No. Oh, I've got it. I'll let you borrow it. Oh, thanks. It's good times. You, you know how on a lot of those propaganda films, they, they talk about how if you smoke marijuana, you're going to become this ruthless ravenous bloodthirsty criminal right. you're going to go psychotic. out yeah you're going to go out and start killing and slaughtering people breaking yes. into
2: taco bells hey. at 3 a.m and now dorito bags
1: of what i know of uh, particularly marijuana and hemp uh prohibition a lot of it was led by uh, hearst
0: hurt william hearst
1: william randolph hearst um in the newspaper industry hmm. um and it it uh, he didn't you know, want people smoking up on his paper. Well, he didn't want he didn't want um, because other papers were printing on hemp, which was his competition for him, and he could run them out of business by printing articles about how hemp was going to make you into drug crazed uh, maniacs. Oh, okay, which of course mm-hmm. is all I, so the the religious aspect of this is is all news to me.
0: Well, do you know where that where that notion that marijuana would make you violent and deranged actually? originally comes from? I do not. There's an article on www.druglibrary.org. It's very well written and has plenty of citations to check out called Marijuana the First 12,000 Years. (laughs) The origins of that notion actually come from Christians responding to Islam during the Crusades. Uh, Oh, Hashim.
2: Oh, yes. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Which is also where we get the word assassin from. Right. Exactly.
2: They smoked up on dope and got real violent.
1: And oh, it wasn't cool, man. It was not
2: cool at all. It's all coming together for me. Yeah,
1: exactly. Wow.
0: Um, Marco Polo wrote these accounts of the assassins. I forget exactly who they were working for, but like the political authority. And, and in his account, they would smoke marijuana or, or they would smoke hashish. Right. right? to have a glimpse of the divine, to actually calm them so that when they were done, they could be precise, careful, calculating assassins. And that is where the term assassins comes from. And this – But many people taking this account and bastardizing it came up with this idea that during the Crusades, there were these violent, bloodthirsty hordes. Of Arabs who were deranged on this this hashish. So wow. um, one example is Doctor A. E. Fossier, who was a fundamentalist, fire and brimstone style preacher, and uh, and he wrote a, a couple of books and was a very early on a very in America in the mid twentieth century was for drug prohibition, and he writes. During the time of the Crusades, the assassins resorted to every kind of violence. Their utter disregard for death and the ruthlessness of their atrocities presented a formidable obstacle to the arms of the Christians. Because under the influence of hashish, those fanatics would madly rush at their enemies and ruthlessly massacre everyone within their grasp.
1: Wow. Well, and if for f- madness.
0: The first time that you can find some sort of governmental – Prohibition on marijuana was actually in 1484. It was Pope Innocent VIII banned the use of cannabis. This was also during the Spanish Inquisition. Mm. Well, before and when so... he had
2: canva- cannabis, he was Pope No Contest. Before he became Pope Innocent.
0: <laughs> wow, <laughs> that was good.
2: Wow, they can't prove anything, man.
0: <laughs> Anyways, during the during the Spanish Inquisition, of course, you know they were persecuting Muslims, and so he. Backed that up with a prohibition against cannabis, and in fact, a lot of times, people who were distributing any kind of hallucinogenic drugs or substances at that time, it was considered a witchcraft, divination, sure. and that sort of thing, and so it was quite common uh, for there to be a religious rationale against using mind-altering substances. Except,
1: um, of course, the Holy Spirit.
0: Interestingly enough, Islam actually allows for marijuana use in therapeutic contexts, Uh, and that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. Alcohol was prohibited by the Quran, So was just pleasurable use of marijuana, but it was considered okay because it had – Therapeutic and medical values, and so if it was used that, in that yeah,
2: context. You ever been and seen those mosques with the little tiles and the patterns? You yeah, can
0: the groove on cool that. mosaics. Yeah, yeah. on
2: yeah. that all day, man.
0: Awesome imagery. Uh, so uh, there is, of course, a long history of religion and drug prohibition. It it does go all the way into our modern age. One example from rather recent history, of course, is Bush and his faith based initiatives. What a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of that money that went to the faith-based initiative under Bush was going to Christian – a lot of times Christian evangelical drug rehabilitation programs. Mm. Uh, This was one of the very first things that Bush tried to get it done. And when he was explaining his rationale, he brought up his own personal testimony, quote from George Bush. There are faith-based organizations in drug treatment that work so well because they convince a person to turn their life over to Christ. By doing so, they change a person's heart. A person with a changed heart is less likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol. And so with Bush and his own experience using cocaine and alcohol, he's convinced that everybody who uses recreational drugs are in the same depraved situation he was and that they all need to find some sort of spiritual redemption. And so he poured tons of money into these programs. And in fact, this article, Bush's Born Again Drug War from Alternet.org, says just months after being tapped by Bush to head the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, Karen Tandy threw her weight behind a grassroots anti-drug campaign called Pray for the Children. Tandy explained, drug abuse is a scourge that attacks a person's soul as well as body. So it's fitting that the solution should engage the soul as well. So even people at the top of this nation's drug war have a religious motivation behind what they're doing. They think they are on a quest to
1: make America more righteous. And I'm not sure with him if it was um – becoming born again, that saved him from drugs and alcohol, or if he became religious as a way to get out of it. There's a good Frontline special on that. Oh, but, was there where, really?
2: Yeah, where he uh, his career basically, you know, tanked in the 80s and he had just had the, the you know the, the twins yeah. and that that Laura was going to leave him over uh, his drinking and that he kind of had a realization, you know. And, and the way that the documentary put it was on frontline was that a lot of it was very utilitarian again that oh, this if I find religion that'll stop me drinking. Okay, well then I'll do that. When okay. I, and oh, yeah. rather than, you know, being Originally guided by the religious impulse,
1: right. Itself. So, be, but because that was such a big factor for him getting off yeah. of drugs, he's he's putting his money in so that other people can can use the same justification to go from one. If you're talking about m- marijuana, fairly innocuous drug, to the uh, I might add corrupting psychological aggression studies religion. show that
2: alcohol is much more likely to make you uh, aggressive than marijuana. So. Just
1: based on experience. I've never been around someone who was high who got violent. But I mean, that's me personally. But I've seen lots of lots of angry drunks. Uh, There's a book, Marijuana Myths, Marijuana Facts, a
0: review of the scientific evidence. In in fact, you can find a link to an overview of the contents of that book at drugpolicy.org. And I mean, there's just a huge list. All sorts of myths about marijuana, such as causing permanent mental illness, making people highly aggressive, all of these thoroughly critiqued using peer-reviewed journal articles. It it certainly is true that marijuana is a dangerous drug. Uh, Especially
1: if you're breastfeeding.
0: It's going to increase... Your chance of heart attack, you know, it's probably a risk for for lung cancer and other things. It's no doubt about it that it's not a healthy thing to put in your body. But is it dangerous enough to justify putting people in prison for using it? Is it
1: more dangerous than alcohol, which is legal and you can –
0: Most of our current attitudes about marijuana is just driven by hype and hysteria, not by clear – scientific evidence
2: you know i've known a lot of jesus people like especially back more back in the uh you hear about these more back in the 70s where they didn't find anything incompatible it was all back to the nature oh, yeah because like it's all they're, natural they're christianity and was was compatible to them with with uh, getting high right god gives
0: us all good p- things of the earth to there, for our use yeah, plenty
1: of hippies who were who are good christians that's
2: what the jesus people was all about yeah
0: we are now going to move into an interview with Ethan Nadelman. Ethan Nadelman is the executive director of Drug Policy Alliance, the leading organization in the United States promoting alternatives to the drug war. Ethan Nadelman is a bit of a celebrity in the anti-drug war movement. He's been described by Rolling Stone as the point man for drug policy reform efforts. Uh, He was just on Colbert Rapport how recently. the hell did
1: we get an interview with him? Yeah,
0: that's the second person that we've had uh, that's been on Colbert, Susan Jacoby. Oh, yeah. That's right. I was able to catch up with Ethan Nadelman this past spring at the Students for Sensible Drug Policy Conference in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I'd also like to give thanks to Steve Sabo, an organizer for that group who helped me get the interview.
2: I thought you cut out with Bonner Bonnaroo, man.
0: Thanks for joining us on the show, Ethan. Thank you very much. What
3: is the Drug Policy Alliance? Well, we're the leading organization in the country of people who think the drug war is doing a lot more harm than good. We span the spectrum in our membership and staff and board from people who think we should simply legalize everything and that that's the best way to deal with this stuff to people who are reluctant to legalize anything but believe we need a much more vigorous health approach rather than criminal justice approach to dealing with drugs and and drug abuse. Um, We're deeply involved in the states and at the national level in promoting legislation around uh, rolling back the mandatory mandatory minimum drug laws or legalizing marijuana for medical purposes or or legalizing needle exchange programs to reduce AIDS or promoting honest drug education. We're active in the courts and the media and what have you. It's really all about trying to uh, advocate uh, and turn into policy a much more science-based, human rights-based, evidence-based Way of dealing with drugs in our society. If your claims are evidence
0: based, what is the other side saying? Uh, wh- what are some of the mistakes that the proponents of the drug war are making?
3: Well, for I mean, at least the last 20, 25 years, science has been subordinate to politics when it comes to the drug policy area. We're not the only area where that's been true, but it's probably been more true in the drug policy area than in almost any other. And to the extent that you saw science being politicized with respect to reproductive rights or in the vi- or environment, at least there were forces that were powerful enough to challenge the government mm-hmm. on that. In the drug policy area, people have just bought into it and accepted it. So, for example, you'll get uh, basically the, the type. Types of questions that will be asked or for which the government will offer funding are politically determined. Uh, you'll see You'll see, for example, a hundred studies will come out on the efficacy of needle exchange in reducing AIDS, and you'll see the drug czar's office cherry-picking the one or two or three, then cast any doubt and rejecting the 95 on the other side. Same thing with medical marijuana. You'll see that innovative approaches like you see in Europe or Canada about, about prescribing pharmaceutical opiates like heroin to drug addicts are not even on the research agenda here. It's purely for political reasons. And it's hard to imagine any sort of self Uh, self-respecting economist being able to endorse almost any aspect of American drug policy over the Mm -hmm. last 25 years.
0: One of the things that impressed me about hearing your talk was just how many different areas that intersect with drug policy. Some of the ones you mentioned were national defense, foreign policy, issues that we have with Mexico and Afghanistan, the high incarceration rates, prison uh, overcrowding, Racial discrimination, I've, I've heard people claim before, and medical issues, of course, Good Samaritan laws. For people who maybe they themselves are not afraid of being a casualty in the drug war, they don't smoke marijuana, they don't use drugs, how would you make the argument to them? How could you show that the drug war affects them negatively?
3: The bottom line is that the vast majority of americans ninety five six seven eight percent of all Americans really don 't get any benefit from the drug war. I mean first of all, the vast majority of Americans are not going to use or abuse any of these drugs even if they were legal that 's first off. Secondly, for the substantial number, the millions who use drugs like cocaine or heroin, the tens of millions who use marijuana, they're by and large worse off because these drugs are illegal. They have to pay more for the drugs. They risk being arrested. They risk losing their job. They, They risk having to go to the black market and deal with criminals to obtain these things. So the only people who really get any benefit from the drug war are those people who would become drug addicts if there were no drug war. Now, the pessimists say that that's actually millions or tens of millions of people. I don't see the evidence to substantiate that. What that all means is that for the ordinary taxpayer – spending $50 or $100 billion dollars a year on a war on drugs while foregoing anywhere from, uh, in, in the tens of billions of dollars in potential tax revenue, that's just a net loss. To the extent you ha- have people in your family or friends or, or, or in your work life who run into problems with these drugs, they're by and large being made worse off by the drug war. To the extent you're concerned about human rights around the world, we see the drug war undermining that. To the extent you're concerned about reducing the number of people who die of overdoses just because you don't think people should die of overdoses, <laughs> Well, the drug war is making that worse. To the extent you're concerned about people getting HIV AIDS or babies being born that way, the drug war is making things worse. To the extent you care about the Bill of Rights or the U.S. Constitution, the drug war is making things worse. To the extent you care about going to Mexico or other countries and not having to worry about drug-related violence, prohibition-related violence, the drug war is making things worse. So you don't have to be a drug user or an illicit drug user to care about drug policy reform. You know, There's a zillion reasons why you should care about it. We claim in
0: America to be all about liberty. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of religion, freedom of the press. But yet when it comes to what we put into our own bodies, it seems that a lot of the public is okay with putting uh, restrictions on that, letting, letting other people legislate what you can put in your body. How did that come to be? Why, why do you think that attitude is so
3: prevalent and, and what ways can we combat that? You know, when people ask how is it that we have this almost puritanical sort of policy with respect to drugs, and one of the things I'll point out is that we were one of the only countries to embrace alcohol prohibition. I mean mm-hmm. other Western societies had powerful temperance movements, but they did not go this way by and large. And if you ask what's that about, I think it's in part the ways in which notions of being drug free, of being of sobriety got woven in with both public health on the one hand and with sort of evangelical Christianity on the other. Mm-hmm. This notion that my body is, is God's vessel and that I am obliged to keep it as pure as I possibly can, 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 do, can do so. So I think that's part of the origins. But I'll tell you, when you look at the core principle of the drug policy reform movement, you know our core principle, which is that people should not be punished, for what they put in their bodies, absent harm to others, regardless mm-hmm. of what that substance is. If you're not hurting anybody else, not getting me on the wheel of a car, you do not deserve to be punished, that we are each sovereign of our own minds and bodies. I think that that notion, although it's not a familiar one to the ordinary American, that when they hear it articulated, there's something about it that sounds right. Mm-hmm. Why? because they already understand that we do care about freedom in this country. They know that part of what makes America great is our First Amendment, is our freedoms of speech and press and religion and assembly. And that to some extent to speak about being having freedom or sovereignty over my own mind and body is entirely consistent, in fact, even fundamental mm-hmm. to those other rights. So I think the challenge right now, one of the greatest long-term challenges for the emerging drug policy reform movement is to articulate and to popularize that core principle.
0: You mentioned there being momentum building behind this movement.
3: Well, I, mean, I think there's a few obvious targets for the drug policy reform movement over the next few years. The first one is that this marijuana issue is opening up in a remarkable way. I mean, 40 percent of Americans already say it should be legal. It's closer to 50 percent out west and among Democrats nationally. Uh, the culture is changing around this. I think that if we could remove marijuana from the criminal justice system entirely, we would eliminate 35 to 40 percent of all the drug arrests in this country. We could instead of spending ten billion a year be taking in five to ten billion a year. I think I think that would be fundamental. I think secondly that there's a redefining of the of the problem in America around crime to the problem of over and mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. We hear that slowly coming out of the White House, we hear it coming from the Virginia Senator Webb with his proposal for an independent commission. More and more that is being defined as the problem. And I think we're going to see serious movement to reduce the number of people being locked up on nonviolent drug charges and the amount of time that they are behind bars. We're going to see uh, abolition of some of these mandatory minimum sentences. We're going to see much more rational sentencing. We're going to see a strong push not to lock people up simply for drug abuse or drug possession. And I think, thirdly, the entire ethos of harm reduction, the basic acceptance of the reality that drugs are here to stay and that we have no choice but to learn how to live with drugs so that they cause the least possible harm and the greatest possible benefit. I think that that basic idea and everything that comes with it is beginning to become much more part of our culture. You know, we've already got designated driving norms. We already have nicotine patches and chewing gums. We've already accepted needle exchange to reduce the spread of HIV-AIDS. I think taking that basic philosophy and employing it to reduce the likelihood that people overdose, whether from alcohol or opiate drugs, to reduce the likelihood that people get hep C, which is emerging Mm -hmm. as the the new AIDS, I think that range of sensible, Pragmatic, public health driven policies supported by the science has a real opportunity now after many decades of ideologically driven policies, it has a real opportunity now to become part and parcel of the way Americans deal with drugs in our society. Let's hope so.
0: And uh, where can our listeners learn more about Drug Policy Alliance?
3: Just go to drugpolicy.org. It's a great website. Uh, You can sign up for our regular e-news alerts and it'll help you keep involved. And, And for those of your listeners who have the opportunity to come to Albuquerque, New Mexico in November, that will be the next of the biennial international drug policy reform conferences. That's the biggest And most remarkable gathering of people opposed to the drug war anywhere in the world. And uh, Albuquerque is going to rock in November. Sounds like
0: fun. Well, thank you so much, Ethan Nadelman, for joining us on the show. Okay, thank you, Jeremy.
1: Okay, so we've covered sex, we've covered drugs. Now, last but not least, we have rock and roll. Uh, A little while back, we sent out the call for suggestions for godless music. And boy, did they come in.
0: Oh, yeah. Our listeners definitely delivered. We have tons and tons of suggestions for skeptically themed
1: music. Yeah. In fact, we have way more than we can ever cover uh, on the show here because we don't have um, hours to devote to it. But uh, many of you listeners out there were nice enough to give us suggestions and uh, write uh, brief reviews of these songs. So we're going to listen to some of those now. So here are uh, some of the most frequently suggested, and frankly, some of the ones that I liked the best uh, music suggestions that we got from you, the listeners. Well, I suppose we should start right at the top. John Lennon's Imagine.
2: imagine there's no heaven.
1: This is one of my very favorite songs, personally, because it asks the listeners to imagine a world with no heaven, no hell, and no religion. It's pretty radical thinking. even though it is also a little bit communist.
2: Imagine, no
1: Imagine is certainly the best-known and most popular non-religious ballad out there. It's also frequently covered. Recently, there was an album released called Instant Karma, which was as, done as a fundraiser for Amnesty International and the Save Darfur campaign on it. A uh, number of musicians did covers of classic John Lennon songs, including not one, but four covers of Imagine, all of which are very good covers and uh, very different. There's a very lovely version by Ever Levine.
3: Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try
1: a nice, laid-back tune by Jack no Johnson. below us And above us is only sky And the great Willie Nelson.
0: Imagine all the people Living for
2: today
1: And then there's this, a kind of funky version of Imagine by a name which I'm sure I'm going to slaughter here, Michelle Indigio Cello. Of course, there are also some bad versions of Imagine out there, including this, the overproduced icon of American wholesomeness, David Archuleta, runner-up on American Idol 2008, did this version in which he cut out all of the non-religious references. What does it tell you about American society that he thought that the communist references would be much more palatable to American audiences than non-religious sentiments? But enough of this crap. It's time to rock and roll. A number of our listeners suggested not just a song, but the entire catalog of the band Bad Religion. One of several listeners who suggested Bad Religion, Jordan, says that the band touches on subjects wider than just atheism. They sing about the human experience, the sense of being lost we can fall into in modern society, but they do so in a generally upbeat way, more in defiance than melancholy. Their songs deal with these issues intelligently and without shying away from an extended vocabulary. Here we have a couple of examples, including Materialist.
2: On the my own, so I'm a
3: materialist.
1: And Hopeless Housewife. Listener Josh also suggested the band Nine Inch Nails for songs like God Given, and the classic Heresy. Another band that came up, much to my surprise, is Rush. Yes, that Rush. John says that a couple of his favorite songs come from the Canadian band Rush. The drummer of the band, Neil Peart, is an agnostic-slash-atheist and wrote some songs that definitely show it. One of their more popular songs, Free Will, is a song about... Obviously, feelings of determinism versus free will in the world. The lyrics and instruments of this song are great. Another, although less known, Rush song, John says, is called Roll the Bones. We actually got a ton of Rush suggestions, more than we can include here, but we'll throw in one more because it came from a friend of the show, Ed Brayton, who is a big Rush fan. This one is called Natural Science. In a short-lived
2: galaxy, each
1: For a very different type of music, Sarah brought up rapper Graydon Square. She says, Almost any track from the Compton Effect is good, but I especially like a rational response and squared. Graydon is highly educated, well-spoken, and vicious, and his lyrics make me feel empowered and hopeful for reason. Here's a sample of a rational response.
3: Species inflicted with change. That's microevolution on the grand scale. We can't even word because our lifespan is too short to observe. But carbon dating is flawed. It's half life is 5,730 years and that's important. Now that'd be great if we use it to date. But since we don't, then I'm a question that arguments way We use potassium argon to date the globe. Not carbon 12 or carbon 14, not none of those. So before you attack, great, go get your facts straight. Because in the facts, you got comes in the last. Place.
1: Listener Paul suggested one of his favorite bands, The Flaming Lips. He brings up the song called Vein of Stars. He says he enjoys it because it's so pretty, and it asks one to consider that we are alone in the universe. And it does so by simply asking, who knows? Maybe there isn't a vein of
2: stars
1: Song by The Flaming Lips that was offered up by Brian is Do you, realize? "Do you Realize?" This one is a beautiful naturalistic ballad about man's place in the universe. And now for something completely different.
0: Every sperm is sacred.
3: Every sperm is great. If a sperm is wasted, God gets quite irate.
1: Oliver sent in suggestion for a couple of classics from Monty Python. That was Every Sperm is Sacred from The Meaning of Life. Oliver calls it another of the many excellent anti-religious offerings from these English middle-class anarchic comedians. He also offers up this little gem.
3: As Oliver puts it,
1: a hilariously irreverent remake of the sickly original All Things Bright and Beautiful. This is All Things Dull and Ugly by Monty Python. Now, we received far more suggestions than what we're able to fit into this short segment here, but some of them included Judith by A Perfect Circle, Show Me How to Live by Audio Slave, Come Down Jehovah by Chris Wood, the music of Dan Barker, Depeche Mode's Blasphemous Rumors, Sermon by Drowning Pool, Salt Lake City Sunday, which Samuel calls not specifically atheistic, but this song by Fad Gadget is a blistering condemnation of Mormonism and proselytizing. There's also Holly Near's song, I Ain't Afraid. Jukebox the Ghost has beady eyes on the horizon, as well as Where Are All the Scientists Now? King's X suggestions, coming in from Jason, include Get Away and I Don't Know. Marilyn Manson's Beautiful People was suggested by a couple of listeners. Modest Mouse, Ocean Breathes Salty. Muse, Thoughts of a Dying Atheist, Megalomania. Pennywise was suggested by a couple of listeners as well. Songs My God and Waste of Time. The song Canons of Christianity by Phil Oakes was suggested by Barry. Josh suggested Randy Newman's God Song. Derek, co-host of Skepticality, suggested George Rabbs. Think for Yourself, which he says that to him, this is the theme song for everyone who is free-thinking, skeptical, logical-type person. Also got a number of suggestions for songs by Tool, a couple for Widespread Panic, including songs This Part of Town and Porch Song. We also have to acknowledge Edward Babinski, who really did our work for us, and on his MySpace page has a playlist entitled The Damned Sing the Damnedest Songs, which is made up of 60 to 70 some tracks of this kind of music. And of course there were a number of other songs and we'll put together a complete list and put that on our blog which hopefully we'll continue to update as more suggestions come in. We're going to end here with the most often suggested song, The Classic by XTC, Dear God. And we're going to finish up this week with a surprising news item. We don't talk about Buddhism
0: a whole lot on the show. It's come up before. But this editorial came my way from The Observer, from The Guardian in the UK. The title is, but mom, it's just not fair. Why do I have to be a Lama?" It's kind of an exploration of vice couldn't from they, a whole
1: different angle. Couldn't they call it Lamentations? <laughs> Ooh. Man, you're on fire today. That one wasn't even dirty. I had another one
2: I screened up. Yeah, okay.
0: If any of you are familiar with Tibetan Buddhism, they believe that a lot of their leaders of the faith, one of the highest ranks you can ascend to, a lama, are oftentimes reincarnated Versions of
1: previous
0: lamas. The mm-hmm. so current
2: one is the 14th
1: Dalai the, Lama. The Dalai Lama, yes. Yeah, so the this current, and he's still weighing whether or not he's going to be reincarnated, right. which we talked about on the show.
0: Uh, but oftentimes, these supposedly reincarnated lamas are selected when they're very young, sometimes five or six years
1: old.
2: Didn't the current one get selected when he was uh, even younger, and he had to pick out certain objects that
1: were. That's yeah, right. that's the way the that's the way llama, they do. It. I like think the movie Kundun is about is it about the current lama or is it about? Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. They have a series of tests that they put the young child through, and if they pass, uh, they at a very young age begin their religious training. Mm-hmm. And one such lama, Ozel Torres, has actually rejected his status as a lama. Tibetan Buddhists believe that he is the reincarnation of the venerable Lama Yishi of Tibet, who was actually the founder for the preservation of the Mahayana tradition. But Ozil, who is now at age 24, mm. has decided that he really doesn't want to be a Lama. Uh, what he wants to be is a film director.
2: Nice. It could be both. Yeah. yeah, why not? This film is nothingness. Exactly. So,
0: In a recent interview with a Spanish newspaper, he recounted his life, uh, training to be a llama, as, quote, a medieval situation in which I suffered a lot. It was a lot like having to live a lie. But when he was 18, he had his first encounter with clubbing. Baby seals?
2: I mean going out and, and like, dancing at, uh, yes. all night? Oh. Yes, at mm-hmm. nightclubs mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: The way he describes it is, uh, what were all those people doing? Bouncing, stuck to one another, <laughs> enclosed in a box full of smoke?
1: <laughs> Just about. That's as that's good a description <laughs> as you're going to get.
0: But he was intrigued and couldn't look away and decided uh, that now he is a, as he puts it, a spiritual, scientific agnostic.
2: So once again, the power of well, rock and roll,
1: sex, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Words,
0: yeah. Yep, he's fled to Spain now, where he lives. The article says enjoying Jimi Hendrix and <laughs> uh, and dancing and all these uh, other great vices, and is currently uh, pursuing his dream of being a film director, much
1: against the wishes, oddly enough, of the Dalai Lama. So what do you think um, the Dalai Lama's buddy Richard Gere has to say about this? Because he's got to be conflicted as a as a Hollywood-type person but also as a um, devout Tibetan Buddhist. This has got to be rough.
0: I don't know. I really don't give a crap what Richard Gere thinks about
1: anything, quite frankly. Oh, that's <laughs> ungenerous of you, sir. Uh, so we can never underestimate – The power of vice, it did uh, convert Osul Torres from being a bona fide llama to being a aspiring film director. So that's what deconverted him. Our question now to you, the listeners, yes, I'm talking to you, is what deconverted you? Were you raised that way? Did you have some kind of moment of epiphany? What were the events or arguments that led you to godlessness that brought you around to a naturalistic perspective. So due to the incredible response we got over our request for songs, we're looking for you to help out once again, listeners, and become a part of the show. We're looking for 200-word essays describing those events, those arguments that deconverted you, that made you into a nonbeliever.
0: And even for listeners who may still be religious but have nevertheless embraced a certain degree of skepticism and value looking at religious critiques, what prompted you towards that?
1: Right. There's a couple of different ways you can get these stories to us. You can contact us, write out your essay, email it to us, and give us your phone number so we can call and record you reading it because we really prefer to have your voices uh, over our own can hear us all the time. We want to get to hear you or those of you who have the ability to record uh, MP3s on your own, which I think is actually a fairly large group of people. You can email those right to us and we will use them on the air. We're keeping them brief, 200 words. And this is something that we'd like to do fairly often, so please start sending in your entries. We want to hear your own contributions to the Gospel of Doubt. And that's going to do it for us this week, and in the meantime, you can join in the discussion at www.doubtcast.org or you can find us on Facebook. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions, and your entries for the Gospel of Doubt to doubtcast at gmail.com and in the meantime... And um, I don't know about you, Jeremy, but anytime I want to know something about sex, there's only one man that I turn to, and that's Dr.
3: Professor Luke Galen. I don't know nothing about it. Oh, okay.